welcome to the STEM Economy with your host, Matt Bender. That's right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Scam Economy. I'm your host, Matt Binder. And with so much happening in the crypto space with Web3, NFTs, new shit coins, new scams, new grifts, new hacks, it's so easy to get caught up in the next thing. But on this episode, we're not going to do that. And I'm sure a lot of crypto advocates and crypto hawkers love that aspect of this because we don't want to dwell on any one thing for too long, right? Especially uh, when that certain thing uh, ended up costing a lot of people a lot of money. But hey, this show is not going to let that happen. On today's episode of Scam Economy, we are not going to move on from the Terra Luna crypto crash quite yet. No, no, no. On today's episode of the show, we're talking to a reporter who spoke with people, real, actual, everyday people from around the world, from Argentina to Iran, from Venezuela to Iraq to Nigeria to get a sense of how these everyday, real people from around the world lost everything in the big crypto crash. You know, we hear so much about the people who, uh, you know, we hear so much about the people who created this and how, oh no, they're, you know, Do Kwan and what's going to happen with him. And then we hear so much about the people talking on Twitter about how, haha, I got this tattoo of Luna and then I, I lost 100000 200000 300000 $500,000, a million dollars or more on Luna. And hey, you know, I, I have all this money to throw around and uh, just another, uh, a bump in the road, and I'm going to just get back into it, invest more in crypto. You've heard those stories all on Twitter, I'm sure, and on other social media platforms. But we haven't heard so much from the people who are ruined. And there is no easy coming back, if there's any coming back at all. These are extremely important stories to tell, and these are extremely important issues to discuss and I'm really looking forward to you all hearing about this with my guest. And before we do that, though, none of this is possible. I can't do this show without the support from you, the wonderful Scam Economy viewers and listeners and fans. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash mapbinder and subscribe. That's the best way to support this show. It's an automatic monthly subscription. You could give as much or as little as you would like. And it helps keep this show at a base level of support. Thank you so much to my current patrons. And if you could become one too, that would be really awesome. Also support this show by going to youtube.com slash mapbinder and subscribing to the channel. Leave a super chat if you're watching the live stream episode of this show or the live stream post show. Uh, or you can leave a super thanks, which is basically a super chat, but on the replay of the videos at any time on the YouTube video pages. You can also support this show by following the Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash Matt Bender. 
And if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can connect your Amazon Prime account to your Twitch account and you get a free Twitch Prime subscription every single month. It's basically free money Amazon is giving you to give away to your favorite Twitch creator. Hopefully that's me. If it's not, at least give it to somebody so Amazon's not keeping the extra bucks. But if it is me, thank you so much. I appreciate the support. And don't forget, your Twitch Prime subscriptions need to be manually renewed every month. So if you're already giving, make sure that subscription didn't lapse. Or if it did, throw that Twitch Prime subscription right back at me if you'd like. Go to ScamEconomy.com for the podcast versions of the show. Check out my other show, Doomed at DoomedCast.com for the podcast versions of that show. Uh, Support either show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's super simple. Go to either of those apps. Type in Scam Economy or Doomed in search and just leave a review. Press the stars. Leave a written review if you'd like. It's a great way for this show to show up on the various top ranking charts on each respective platform, and get new eyeballs on Scam Economy. And now let's get to this episode where we look into the lives ruined by the Terra Luna crypto crash and the predatory nature of this all, quite frankly. And joining me now to discuss all of this is a reporter at Rest of World who specializes in Latin America, uh, Leo Schwartz. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Leo, I, I came across a few of your pieces recently in Rest of World, and I've been looking right after the whole Terra Luna crash to actually, you know, I feel like uh, maybe in some corners, uh, maybe in the crypto world, they're looking to move on as quickly as possible and not sort of, uh, I don't know, simmer in this stuff. Uh, but for me, I felt like it was super important to go back and uh, talk to people who uh, either experienced this themselves or in your case, you know, even better, you've spoken to so many individuals, I think a, a couple dozen, right? Yeah, it was a dozen for this story. Uh, you know, you spoke to a dozen people who shared their experience about what they lost and how they were affected by the crypto crash that happened a few weeks ago, uh, really caused by the failure and uh, sort of a crash in and of itself of the stablecoin Terra and its sister token Luna. Now, before we jump into your reporting, can you give us, you know, people who who might, you know, maybe they've been living under a rock, I don't know, but maybe they, they missed out on what happened or they're just getting into crypto now and they want to find out. Can you give us a, a quick summary basically on what happened a few weeks ago with the stablecoin Terra and Luna? Yeah, definitely. So I think to start off, it's important to say there are different types of cryptocurrencies Uh, The most classically known ones like Bitcoin tend to be more volatile and changing their price daily. There's an entire class of cryptocurrencies that are called stable coins. And these are pegged either to uh, an underlying currency like the US dollar or a commodity like oil. And presumably they're supposed to be pegged one to one with with this underlying asset. And that means that unlike the volatility of Bitcoin, these will actually retain their value one to one if you want to redeem them 
for its underlying currency, such as dollars, you can do that anytime. Uh, Terra, Terra and Luna were a sort of special case because they're what's known as algorithmic stable coins, which means they weren't actually backed by the reserves of the asset that they were tracking, which again, in this case, they were supposed to be one-to-one -one with the US dollar, where Terra was, which was the stable coin. Uh, it was governed by this incredibly complex algorithm that was backed by its sister token, which was called Luna. Uh, so in mid-May, uh, through a very complex run of events, some people say it was coordinated, that hasn't been confirmed yet, uh, Terra lost its peg with the US dollar, meaning it started plummeting in value along with Luna, its sister token. Uh, this tri triggered an enormous crash in the overall crypto market, including with Bitcoin, uh, which saw a lot of currencies losing half their value, if not more. Um, over the course of just a few days, Terra and Luna lost almost 100% of their value. Uh, and of course, this had ripple effects for lots of people who were holding any types of these currencies. Um, but what I was looking at, my reporting specifically, was people, uh, as the title of my publication is called, and the rest of the world outside of the US and Western Europe, who had held Terra with this promise that it was stable, that it was going to be pegged to one-to-one -one with the US dollar, and then lost their savings overnight. You know, it's it's really amazing how this went. And I just want people to understand, too, like, you know, even if you're not familiar with Terra and Luna, like you had mentioned and summarized, and I, I you know, a, a couple of weeks ago when this happened, I did like a quick emergency podcast, like literally within that like two-day time frame where crypto was just crashing due to this. And I had uh, Bennett Tomlin on from the Crypto Critics Corner podcast. And, you know, we discussed, you know, what was going on in that moment. But because, you know, we were talking while it was literally happening, we didn't get to discuss basically, I think, what we can really summarize as the fallout. What, why this mattered. Like, you know, it's, it's easy to sit here and, you know, for you and I to talk about like, oh, the, the numbers that fell and, you know, Terra was worth this, supposed to be pegged to a dollar and now it's worth like a penny. And Luna was once at $88 and people were saying, invest, it'll go up to a thousand. And then it crashed to literally a percentage of a penny, not even a full penny. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, it's interesting stuff, but it's sort of detached from what really matters and how everyday normal people like you spoke to in your reporting were affected by this. And, you know, I, I think people might have gotten a taste of that over the past couple of weeks because it was like sort of a thing on social media. Like if you were on Twitter, for example, you probably saw mostly like people from the U.S. who were, you know, uh, saying like, oh, my God, I put $200,000 into this and I'd never told my wife I invested in it. And now I'm going to like I lost all my money and I'm probably going to get a divorce. And, you know, if, if you ask me like that totally sucks and I and I feel bad for them. But, you know, if you have $200,000 to invest in something like this, you know, you, you're, you're probably going to uh, – be okay or be able to recuperate some sort of amount of money to uh you know to, to to be fine i mean maybe not when it comes to the the divorce but monetarily you should be okay i think and a lot of those people too are not even like i'm done with crypto a lot of those rich i don't want to say rich but uh you know well off people are sort of like oh, i'll just have to make my money back in this token and it's sort of like oh my god do you do you, do you not learn <laughs> uh but with the people you spoke to, that could not be farthest, uh, furthest, I should say, 
from from that experience. Like, give me an example of you know we'll we'll, we'll talk about a few of them, but uh, that that first person you spoke to who, who who didn't even seem to invest that much, and all of a sudden that little bit of savings that they had is just completely gone, and and they they probably won't be able to quickly you know just like that make it back. Yeah, I think there's a real stereotype around crypto that the people who are investing in it tend to be highly technical crypto bros who can afford to lose a huge amount of money. Of course, now in the US, you're seeing crypto being targeted more to the mainstream. I know you did a great episode on the crypto bowl where there was all these ads in the Super Bowl for cryptocurrency. Uh, what we report on at Rest of World uh, is really the ripple effects of technology, again, outside of the US and Western Europe. And I think there's a really interesting case study in countries that have weak currencies or have unreliable unreliable banking systems where a lot of people have been turning to cryptocurrencies as what they see as a stable alternative. In the US, you have the US dollar, so you really don't need that alternative. In a country like Argentina, where the peso has incredible levels of inflation and where they're not able to buy US dollars, you really have to look to other alternatives. Uh, and when you couple that with a lack of financial education, that's a recipe for disaster. So the person you brought up, this woman that I spoke with in Argentina, uh, runs a food operation out of her house. So she makes prepared food for people in the community. Obviously, she's not making a huge amount of money. She'd heard about Terra as this stable alternative where she could actually start putting money. Uh, and I would encourage everyone to listen to the episode with Bennett Tomlin, but he talks about also this series of protocols that was built around Terra. So you could deposit this stable coin and then you would start being able to reap uh, an interest rate or a yield as high as 20 percent. Oh, right. So anchor. Like anchor. Right. Yes. Yes. Anchor. And there's other ones that were even more volatile. Uh, so she had started putting her money into this. She heard that it was a safe bet. Not only was it a safe bet against inflation, but she would also be getting uh, a yield off of it. So she put all of her savings into it. She put the equivalent of $500 that her friend had lent her to buy a new refrigerator. And then when it crashed, she lost all her money. Uh, and again, I think this is a side of the story that a lot of people aren't looking at, where if you have a crypto bro in the US who loses all of his money from his board ape NFT that he's bought, or he put all of his money because he was one of the lunatics who was really into Luna, maybe you don't feel too much sympathy for that. But I think in a lot of parts of the world, people don't necessarily have the financial literacy to understand the risk inherent with these investments. And then when there is that volatility for something that's literally called a stable coin, uh, they're going to lose an immense amount of money that they can't afford to lose. Absolutely. And I will say, I don't think people here have the uh, financial knowledge either to be doing this. The, the, the major difference to me is really uh, people in the uh, in the countries like that you, you spoke to, they have a lot more to lose because they have a lot less. Um, you know, and the opportunity to even... Uh, you know, uh, recuperate any of those losses is just nil, if even existent at all. You know, um, so did did you find out from that uh, that woman you spoke to in Argentina how she found out about um, you know uh, Terra and you know the ability for her to put this? What was it? She had a thousand dollars of her own money and then five hundred dollars she borrowed. Oh my god, that's just horrible. Did, did you did, did she share how she found out about this in the first place? Yeah, so a lot of the people we spoke with with for the article 
they learn about it from word of mouth. They learn about it from a friend. They learn about it from YouTube or various influencers. And in the case of something like Terra and Anchor Protocol, you put in a little amount of money, you start to see the yield, it maintains its $1 peg and you feel good about it. So you put in more and you put in more. And that's what happened with most of these people is they sort of dip their toes into the water, they try it out, it works out well, they put more in, they put more in because it seems safe. And then they don't expect the crash like this to come, but it does. Uh, I think your point about financial literacy is is right on the mark where this is this is obviously a global problem. I mean, you see this in the US, not only with crypto, with apps like Robinhood that have emerged that have basically made investing into gambling um, with all of these, uh, what is it, buy now, pay later tools that are coming out where you don't, you can buy a $1,000 item and pay for it over the course of six months. And a lot of people are buying things that they can't afford, which obviously isn't a new phenomenon, but I think a lot of tech companies are exacerbating this. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's replicated everywhere. And then it's also spread through social networks, through influencers, and through word of mouth, where people have made a little bit of money in the short term. Uh, they tell their friends to get onto it. And then if a crash happens, uh, it's both unexpected and devastating. Absolutely. And it's your point about like, you know, uh, I think I think there is some sort of like disconnect in terms of like, we, we, we should allow, you know, certain things like like like, you know, the stock market, for example, or credit cards in like the, the case of Robin Hood and like those uh, buy now, pay later uh, uh, companies um, like, you know, stock the stock market. You could, people could buy stocks and people get credit cards to buy things now and pay it later uh, for, for, for decades and decades and decades. That's not a new thing. But, you know, some somewhere along the line, you know, tech people came along and said, you know, more people should have access to this, which sounds, you know, sounds good. Right. You know, why should, you know, people uh, of, of lesser means not be able to access the ability to, um, you know, uh, uh, work their way up. People make money off the stock market, right? People make money off investments. Uh, credit cards, we're taught in this country at least, um, you need good credit to be able to even buy anything of any real value and you can't have good credit. You don't get good credit if you don't get credit cards and buy things with credit cards and pay off your debts. In fact, we're even taught that some debt is good. It actually helps your credit report. Um, and then, you know, they democratize these things and they open up to more people. But then there's that barrier of entry did keep the most vulnerable away from, frankly, getting fucked by it. Yeah. I mean, this is the tension in so much technology and especially in cryptocurrency, which is this buzzword of democratization, right, which is a lot of investors and a lot of uh, entrepreneurs will use the word democratization to say, well, what we're doing is we're building a tool that opens up access to these types of financial systems that people haven't had in the past. And in some ways, that's true. I think when you look at something like fractional trading apps like Robinhood, where you can buy fractional shares uh, of a stock, you can have a dollar of Apple instead of having to buy the entire share that does open up access. But again, when you combine that with this issue of financial literacy and potentially false advertising with what the inherent risks are, then again, that's that's a recipe for disaster. And with crypto, with all of these buzzwords like decentralized finance uh, and Web3, the idea, again, is you're putting you're putting all the power into the hands of the people who are on that platform. But the people on that platform don't necessarily know how it works or the risks that they're getting into when they're when they're involved.
Right, and and I should say, and I'm not. What I'm got to say is not a, a giving a pass to Robinhood by far or the credit card companies, but there are. You know, there are th- some sort of protections there. Like you could only put so much in Robinhood at a time before they say you, you, you can't put any more in. You, you, you know, there's bankruptcy protections and other various credit. There's credit card limits, obviously, and other things that sort of say, hey, you can't do this. With crypto, there's none of that. Like the that woman you spoke to right up top, she was able to sign up day of, insert 1500 bucks, no problem. And when Luna and Terra crash... There's no recourse. That money is gone. There's no sort of like debt that she can get wiped by filing for bankruptcy or something. It's just kaput. Yeah. I mean, the question of regulation with cryptocurrency is a fascinating one because you sort of see everyone calling for regulation from consumers to critics to the companies themselves to legislators. It depends, obviously, how hollow they're being when they're asking for regulation, but it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, And it's clearly something that we need to see, especially as it's growing more powerful. Uh, But it's almost a catch-22, which is as it becomes such a huge part of the global economy, it becomes that much more difficult to regulate it. Uh, I did an interview with Paulo Orduino, who is the CTO of Tether, which is uh, the biggest stable coin, one of the world's most traded cryptocurrencies, uh, as well as Bitfinex, which is uh, a big crypto exchange. And when we talked, he had said, yes, we want regulators to actually tell us what a stable coin is. The issue is that Terra was able to call itself a stable coin. Of course, it wasn't actually stable. It was an algorithmic stable coin. And that's in his argument, he would say that's very different than a reserve backed stable coin. Um, and it's easy to sort of pass the buck on to regulators and say, look, we're just operating here. It's up to the regulators, the governments to really say, this is how you should operate. This is how you can defend, you can define X and Y. And that just hasn't happened. Right. And, and you know, I, I'm sort of, I, I look at regulation as sort of like a, a, a double-edged sword. Like, obviously, the space needs it. But when you hear from politicians, at least in the U.S., who talk about crypto regulation, it's almost solely coming from like the pro-crypto politicians who seek to regulate it in ways that really bolster it. And you know, when when Paolo, oh, I'm sorry, I can't even. What's his name again? I'm I'm bad at pronunciation sometimes. Paolo. Paolo. There we go. Um, I think I'm saying that he's Italian. There you go, Paolo. Uh, it's one of those names where you read so much, but because you just like he's not doing interviews all the time, so you don't really hear it. So Paolo, um, you know, when he says that uh, he wants regulation, I'm sure the regulation he wants would be heavily influenced by crypto lobbyists who get to, you know, uh, define sta- what a stable coin is in a way that's uh, very preferable to Tether, I'm sure. Yeah, well, tech regulation, I think we've always seen as sort of a double-edged sword where either you have legislators who aren't the most tech literate or they're being influenced by different lobbies. So it's difficult to imagine a future where there's perfect regulation if that even exists. But yeah, it's it's difficult to really understand what's happening when someone like him says. So just a brief breakdown of the criticism of Tether, which is the stable coin, it's certainly more stable than something like Terra is because uh, it is to some extent backed by the currency which it's pegged to, which is the US dollar. The question is what actually comprises of its reserves um, when they've released uh, breakdowns of what comprise their reserves, a lot of it is 
commercial papers, which is more risky corporate debt. Um, they've said that they're moving this into treasuries, which is much more stable and more secure, uh, but they haven't really fully divulged what the counterparties are of their holdings or what the percentages are. This is all to say that what he told me is, look, it's not our fault that we have this sort of opaque combination of what makes up our reserves because regulators haven't done anything to tell us what we should do. They haven't told us what a stable coin needs to actually be comprised of in order for it to have the definition of a stable coin. Uh, so you hear a statement like that and you can say it's true. Politicians haven't done that yet. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what's happening behind the scenes in terms of the lobbying efforts of a company like Tether, um, but it, it would be interesting to see when regulation emerges, what it will actually look like and who will favor. And oh, I would love for you to do an entire episode of that. Oh <laughs> yeah, I, I would love. I've been, you know, I've been, you know, I, I still have to do a full blown tether episode because I haven't even, you know, in summarization here of what that episode will sort of uh, dive into. You know, to that, uh, to what you just said, you know. I would say, for one, um, you know, it, it, absolutely what you said is true. Like, you know, the you know the regulators and politicians have not put anything out there to sort of guide what should be going on here. At the same time, that's really um, you know uh, uh, fun to hear from uh, the CTO of Tether, uh, because you would think that at the very least. Um, if you advertise that your stable coin is backed one for one by the U.S. dollar and the money's in the bank, then you wouldn't go ahead and get fined millions and millions of dollars by, uh, you know, attorney general in this country who uh, looked into you and found out that you're in fact not even telling the truth about how you define your own stable coin. <laughs> yeah. So what he says is what it means to be pegged one-to-one -one with the U.S. dollar is anytime you go and you say, I want to exchange this tether I'm holding for a dollar, you get a dollar in exchange. Uh, and when there was the crash, they were able to do, I think it was $7 billion in transfers back to U.S. dollars. And that was his argument for saying, look, we didn't lose our peg, even though in some exchanges they technically did briefly, but he says in their main exchange in Bitfinex, we never actually lost that peg. The question is, if you were to, if every single person holding Tether were to go ask for U.S. dollars, if they were able to do that. Oh, um, I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I, I know what you're saying, but I, I if, for me personally, I don't even think that's a question. I think we know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, the question for me is, um, do you really get the, the money in the bank or the debt every time you print up that like, like those like. Those nights where all of a sudden a billion tether are suddenly printed up, uh, you know, that's my that would be my question. Um, question. <laughs> right. Um, but actually, we 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 actually jumped a little bit ahead because you know this is a, another piece I wanted to talk to you about. Everyone should check out, and it'll be in the description for this episode. Uh, your uh, Leo's pieces in uh, 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 rest of rest world. Because I, I got to make sure not to say rest of the world. Rest of world dot <laughs> org. Um, cause we're going to talk about three pieces here that all intertwine I, and I don't want to get off, uh, after talking about and introducing the episode by talking about how important it is to hear from, uh, the stories of those who, who lost so much to get into the CTO of Tether right away. Um, yeah, sorry to change the subject there. No, it's, no, it's the whole thing. It's, it, it really is all intertwined because what this episode is really all about is you have a, you have the people who lost everything and have no recourse and were lied to. And we're misled and are screwed. 
and they're 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 done. Like that's it. And they're the, some of these people are the most vulnerable of vulnerable people in the world. And then on the other side, while this is all happening, you have the crypto elites and the old school finance people who are also involved in this world. Literally, as these people are suffering and 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 losing everything, still pumping this stuff and still talking it up as no, it's still going to help these people when clearly it, it hasn't. Um, so who you know, you already spoke about that. Um, that uh, that woman you spoke with in Argentina, how um, who else have you? Like, why don't you actually uh, share what country, uh, like the location of the people you spoke to? Like, what countries are we talking here from your piece? Yeah, so it was all over the world, and again, the overwhelming amount of responses that we got were from people in countries either with unstable economies, poor banking systems, or weak currencies. So these were countries like. Uh, it was uh, Venezuela, Iran, Pakistan, uh, I think India, Nigeria, uh, El Salvador, Venezuela, um, all these countries. We got responses from people who were holding Terra as well as other stable coins, again, with this promise of stability because they can't rely on their currency or because they don't have access to something like a U.S. dollar. Or, I mean, obviously, there's been inflation with the U.S. dollar, but it's nothing close to the currencies that a lot of these people have. For example, in Argentina, it's something like 50% uh, in a given year. And a lot of these countries have currency controls, which means the only way to be able to get access to different assets is either through black market exchanges, which is incredibly expensive, or now going back to this theme of regulation because it all comes full circle, cryptocurrency uh, and a lot of different cryptocurrency platforms because it's not regulated or because it has light regulation is the way that they can actually get access to alternative currencies. So that's what they turn to. Uh, this is something that you see a lot in Venezuela, especially where cryptocurrencies offer this almost loophole to the international banking system where people can be able to hold their, uh, their money in or their savings in different types of assets where they wouldn't be able to in something like the US dollar or be incredibly expensive to. When you now do it through crypto platforms, the rates of exchange are much lower, but obviously the risk is a lot higher. So in the short term, it might be good, but in the long term, when you see a crash like this, people are going to lose a huge amount of money. Right. And, and you know, that, that's one thing that you, you, one thing you just mentioned here, and it stuck with me. It was right at the end there. You know, the risk is higher. But from reading your piece, uh, according to the people that you spoke with, they didn't know the risk was higher. Like that's the scary thing. And you, this is something. You, this is major overlap too. You see with people in the U.S. There was like a recent uh, poll. I, I, I'm just thinking about it now. I wish I had it on me. Um, uh, but there was a recent poll I saw where um, when uh, there was a poll done asking crypto holders in the U.S. and they broke it down by race. I think it was white, black, and Latino. And they basically asked. Um, you know, how much crypto do you hold? And, you know, white people were held more crypto, but uh, blacks and Latinos weren't far behind. Um, but like, you know, whites were all the way on the right side showing the most and blacks and Latinos were sort of like center to like center left um, on the on the mark with right being, you know, having the most or or the highest uh, amount of people in that category saying yes. But then they got to the question of, is crypto regulated? And then is crypto safe to invest in? And those sides completely flipped with more white people 
saying, no, it's not regulated and, you know, it is very risky and volatile. But more black people and Latino people saying, oh, no, I think it's regulated and there is some sort of like safety precautions and nets there and everything. It's not, you know, there's and it, it was it blew my mind because, I mean, it's like that, that's that's what we're seeing across like around the world. I mean, it's it's there's this predatory aspect to crypto um, that's predatorial to everyone, but it seems extra predatorial to people with that this constant selling of um you know will 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 um help you with um you know sending money overseas no no to little fees uh will help you with um uh you know you're unbanked no problem here we can help you out there uh you know all sorts of different issues what you just brought up with like you know inflation issues with um you know certain countries who have volatile currencies um, like it, it's it's so predatory overall, but then it also seems to be extra have extra focus on certain communities. And again, we could say this about the financial system as a whole. But then there are obviously those barriers to entry that, while suck in certain aspects, do keep those more vulnerable communities out of those playing fields in those old school sort of financial sectors that crypto doesn't have. Yeah. And I do think this comes back to the financial system overall. And it's a place where I play somewhat of a devil's advocate, like certainly not an apologist for this. But if you look at a country like Argentina, there is incredibly low trust in the currency and for good reason. Uh, Countries defaulted on its loans frequently since 2000 and people have lost their savings overnight time and time again. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with the unfair nature of the global finance system where people in Argentina just don't have access to stable forms of currency where they can store value. Uh, And in that sense, I do think cryptocurrency can offer more of a use case in different countries outside the U.S., where in the U.S., again, it's going to be more of this case study of speculation where people are trying to get rich scheme. In other countries, you can start to see a use case where when they're shut out of global banking system a lot of ways, now they have a place where they can have more stability or like you mentioned there can be different outlets for remittances that don't rely on predatory systems like western union that charge exorbitant fees i don't think we've necessarily seen that be the case yet and there's immense downsides that come with it which which again is the problem in some ideal world maybe cryptocurrency would be used uh, as a way of inclusion in countries that really need it Uh, i don't think that's really been the case so far in the flagship case studies you see like El Salvador, of course, it's been for the most part an unmitigated disaster, right. but you can see why it would make sense. And also why someone in a country like Argentina would have zero trust in the peso, but then if their friend tells them about this so-called stable coin, they're going to be like, okay, I'm going to turn to this. Uh, it makes sense that they would look for an alternative. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, I had an episode, I had a Mario Gomez on uh, for an episode and he, we were talking about, you know, the, the remittance case, because that is like one of the major um, uh, aspects that crypto promoters and advocates focus on when they try to, you know, sell you on the idea that crypto will, will is good for the world. Um, and, you know, he was telling me that, like you mentioned, El Salvador is a case where it's been a disaster. But he was even telling me on this, the, the aspect of remittances, like no one's using it. And when there are, um, you know, the, the, the various different service providers that uh, are, are there that try to facilitate this, 
the fees end up being not much different, if not more than like traditional uh, remittance payment uh, processors. Uh, so it's interesting to see, you know, like, you know, could there possibly be something there for I mean, clearly there is a gap here. Like, clearly there is this opening. My thing has always been because, you know, I don't know if you've ever, uh, uh, you know, had interaction with like the hardcore like pro crypto people online but whenever i say my crypto criticisms they tell me like oh you're defending the old financial system it's like like you know we could have like and i'm not i in fact i i think it's terrible too but like we need to come to this point i think where we need to realize that the old way of doing things is broken and there needs to be a new way but that doesn't mean the first thing that comes along is that new way Especially when in some cases it's even worse than the old way. Like, like I feel like crypto is being presented as a disaster. Excuse me. Crypto is being presented as a answer to that question in so many countries, U.S. included. But then again, the countries, uh, you know, where the people that live that you spoke to. And I'm just saying, like, we just unfortunately don't have the answer yet. Uh, but, of course, that's a tougher sell. Like, people don't want to hear things suck we need a, a fix, but we just don't have the fix yet. They'll just unfortunately jump at to whatever's being told is the fix, even if it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned like the hardcore Bitcoin maximalists or, or crypto bros who I certainly have received my fair share of trolling online. Right. Uh, at the same time, and, and maybe I'm biased here because I do cover Latin America. I'm based in Mexico. I spent a lot of time talking to crypto advocates in this region. And while, of course, you do have that facet of the community that's the more unreliable acolytes who will defend it at any cost, I do think there is a very thoughtful subset who see the real problems that are happening in the region and are working both on education and actually to build solutions that address things like remittances. And again, I, I can't quantitatively prove this, but I feel like a lot of the projects in Latin America are more targeted at that and to tend to be a little more thoughtful um, where rather than just being based around pure speculation, they are looking at issues like remittances and figuring out how can we actually lower the fees that are being charged in that. And you see platforms like Bitso in Mexico, which is one of the major Mexican tech companies, which does seem to be making progress on that front. Um, well, that, in, you know, I actually yeah. think those sorts of things are great, you know, and it's good to hear. I mean, I actually like I really do think that there are people with with good intentions in this space. Um, but we just uh, – one of my criticisms usually is like, you know, I, I always bring – I think the NFT space is the greatest example of this for like, you know, uh, most people to just have this visualization of it. Like we're, we're constantly told that, um, you know, uh, NFTs will uh, help starving artists and musicians and, you know, all sorts of uh, uh, talent who usually have struggled to make a buck. It'll help them – you know, finally make the well, the, you know, their their well deserved money, and they get royalties in perpetuity too every time their NFT is sold. And how does the NFT uh, community as a whole decide to best showcase these possibilities that they claim NFTs have? They all support the Board API Club as the standard bearer of the NFT community, which is a project created by two marketers and two developers who paid their artists a one-time flat fee, and then now they're reaping all the rewards as internet marketers and developers. It's like, it's like you know, if, 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 the, if these communities in the crypto world felt so 
sure about like if, if their number one case was to support the unbanked and the the you know the the, the downtrodden and people and the workers and working class and those impoverished and in poverty um then they would support the projects like the ones you were just talking about and sort of lift those up as like you know the visualization of what crypto can be but then we get like you know play to earn games and shit like that. <laughs> yeah I mean, NFTs and metaverse and play to earn, this is something we cover. We cover a good amount of rest of world. I should say we're, we're a tech publication, so we cover all sorts of different subjects. But of course, crypto at this point is, is pretty inescapable. Uh, and the amount of projects who are trying to make NFTs happen, who are trying to make play to earn happen beyond the more exploitative systems you see in a game like Axie Infinity or trying to make the metaverse happen are numerous. The users are not as numerous. So these are all projects. Like you said, it's it's really um, uh, a solution in terms of in, in search of a problem. I think that's what people say. That's the, the nifty phrase that people right. have, which is that they have all this infrastructure for this financial system that will change the world. But there really isn't that appetite for it yet. And there really isn't that use case yet for really how it's going to be utilized. And I think, like you said, that's especially true when you're looking at something like NFTs or metaverse, which obviously hasn't really caught on in a mainstream way yet. Um, financial instruments like the yield bearing protocols are a different matter. I think that's easier for people to understand because it's you put some money into this right. platform and you'll get back 20 percent. That's right. that's a much easier thing than, oh, I'm going to hold on to this JPEG and. I'm the sole owner of it, and then later I can sell it. <laughs> I think I think that's still a pretty difficult proposition. Right, and I'm I'm assuming that like you know uh, around the world in like you know uh, Latin America, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Nigeria, um, I'm assuming they're not familiar that a twenty percent yield is like Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme level yield. Like they don't know who Bernie Madoff is. Yeah, although. Scams are everywhere. Scams are not a, <laughs> a right. unique. Let me tell you, if I, if I saw 20% yeah. yield, I mean, I, I would trust throwing down my money more on a scratch-off lotto ticket than a 20% yield. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> that's that's sort of the thing, too. Like, you know, I, I, I think people need to understand that, like, again, who knows where the future will, will bring us? I, I'm obviously very skeptical and don't think it'll be. But, you know, even if you're an advocate, I mean, I feel like you we should, everyone should come to terms right now, at least where, like, you know, we're treating this market again, where people around the world who are vulnerable are putting their money in. And we're treating this as like it's it's like, oh, uh you just buy like a, a bond from the treasury and your money will definitely be there in 30 years plus more. But in fact, it's more like, Oh no, you, you just took that refrigerator money girl from Argentina and you just threw it on craps at the casino. I mean, that's sort of like what my, like I, if, if crypto sold itself to people like exactly what it's trying to be, get rich quick, welcome to the casino, let's gamble. You know, I would have less of a problem with it. We should regulate it just as hard as we regulate Las Vegas, for example. Um, but, you know, at least it would be what it is. No one's going and, uh, you know, I mean, they are spending their life savings in Vegas, but they know it's not a safe investment. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It seems like so much of our society now is built around gambling. I mean, you see the proliferation of sports betting enabled by tech now that's spread across the U.S. and, and also globally. And 
it's it's tough to really understand that balance where of course we can say all right well the issue is education the issue is financial literacy i don't know what that actually looks like this is something we don't even teach in public education in the u.s right <laughs> like so, we're not we're not taught how to do our taxes you know i don't I, I don't really know when that when that level of literacy comes in and whose responsibility that is or what types of what type of difference it makes that's a great point and i'm sure there's some like heavy lobby lobbying from like quicken loans or something to not or h&r block to not teach people that it wouldn't surprise me um you know but you just brought up a great point in your report um you spoke with um, a what was it like a blockchain company in uh, what country was it? Was it Argentina as well, or where was that blockchain company located? Um, Is this in the in the DeFi article? Uh, no, in the uh, that most recent one. Hold on, let me just pull it up. Give me a second. Um, do, 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 the, the person who was holding like the the uh, scholarship who handed out the scholarships for like oh, the yeah yeah yeah. So he's a he's a crypto educator. So his whole thing is that he thinks, again, that Argentina presents a particularly unique use case for crypto. And what he's going to do is actually try to teach responsible classes on what it means to hold crypto, what different types of cryptocurrencies are and the risks inherent with it. And his credit, I think he's actually doing that. Like if, if you look at his classes or his Twitter from months ago, he'd be the first to say, Terra is not a safe bet. This is an algorithmic stable coin. Uh, it's volatile. Anything could happen to it. It's not pegged one to one. And his whole argument is basically, if we can do this on a broader scale, if we can get more people actually understanding the risks inherent with crypto, uh, then it could be a much better proposition for the broader population. I think the issue uh, in Latin America, at least, is you have this enormous digital divide uh, with not only financial literacy, but also tech literacy or even access to tech, where when you have that lack of a middle class in a very bifurcated society, it's really difficult for a lot of people to actually have access to that information or to the tools to be able to responsibly trade. Um, of course, for very well-educated, very wealthy people in the society, A, they have more money to play around with, and B, they might understand how to do it a little more safely. Um, so. If initiatives like his can actually spread and do this on uh, a broader to a broader swath of people, and if you don't have an entire collapse of the crypto system, then then maybe that could be a better thing, or right? at least right. better than what we're seeing now. Right. See, I automatically when I was reading the piece, I was automatically skeptical, and I was like, "All right, uh, it's, the company is called uh, D, uh, Defy. Oh, it's actually Defy, like spelled D-E-F-Y, Defy Education." Um, yeah. nice play on words. Uh, <laughs> and the crypto education company. I automatically, my first thought was, all right, this guy is handing out scholarships right during this crash. What are his holdings? <laughs> Why is he choosing right now to do this? Like, I mean, we again, I, I'm not saying that he's doing that. And from what you described, it sounds like he's got good intentions. But like, from my work in this space, I have seen time and time again. Just the 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 like the the, just the the audacity of like using every single um, event that happens and just saying like how can we use this to pump crypto? I mean the Ukraine uh, stuff is a perfect example of of how we saw this being used. Like you had literally different token uh, founders like on their knees on Twitter begging Ukraine to accept their token as um as for their donations and even like 
putting like the carrot on the string as this this country is is fighting a war against you know an imperialist Russian invasion, and they're like, if you accept uh you know if you accept this token. I'm going to donate a million dollars to you. And it's like, this country's at war. What are you doing right now? Just donate the money and shut up. But, you know, they want to use this opportunity to pump their coins usage to say, hey, look, we're being used in this. Get some, like, news coverage and uh, p- perhaps some, like, uh, new people picking it up because they, they, they're speculating and think this might be the next coin. So that's where my mind automatically goes just because this space has – has uh, I don't I don't even know what word to use here. It's it's defiled my mind. <laughs> Best track record. I think a very healthy level of skepticism is always good. And I think, as you pointed out, so much of the crypto ecosystem relies on more and more people entering it. For the value of any of these currencies to go up, you need more demand. Uh, so some some may describe that as a pyramid scheme of sorts. It has a pyramidal structure, <laughs> you know, but. I think when you look at at anything from NFTs to Bitcoin to something like the Anchor Protocol, you need that demand. You need more people going on. And and I think that's why there's so much advertising going into it. But again, that's not necessarily unique to crypto. I think that's going to be common with any financial ecosystem. Um, But here, of course, the people who are acolytes of crypto need more people buying into crypto for the ecosystem to keep going. So in your piece, there was someone. Was it? I think it was the uh, the individual from Nigeria, who uh, you, you you spoke with in the piece, who basically shared that. Um, and I, I, I might I may be the wrong individual, but I think it's the person from Nigeria who saw Luna falling, and he bought in at twenty dollars. Like I'm assuming he bought in a good, a decent chunk. Because he thought, oh, you know, this, this, this is the ebbs and flows of Twitter. And, you know, the crypto community constantly promotes the idea of buying the dip, buying the dip. Again, this whole, you know, I, I, I don't know of where else you sort of see this. Like, I don't, I, it's, it's so weird to me. Like, you could say stock market, but it's not really the same. You know, the, it, it, I, I mean, the type of people who probably buy the dip in the stock market like that are probably the same people who are buying the dip in crypto. But that's, you know, a crypto thing. Um, sort of like the, you know, it's the cryptoization of all the investment like areas. Um, but he bought it and then he lost it all like immediately because it continued to drop. You know, I, I'm bringing it up because it's, it is sort of, again, it is on that predatory, uh, sort of, uh, topic, but at the same time, like, you know, this, it, there's, there's nowhere else. I think that the, the people have this wrong headed idea. And again, and the education has a lot to do with it where, this stuff will always go up. Like, it's intrinsic. Like, it's an inherited quality. It can't, like, maybe it'll dip for a second because some people sold off, but it'll always go up. Like, it's part of its nature. Like, it's organic in a way. Um, I mean, you know, if people see a, a, a stock dropping, that's usually an indicator to sell and not and wait to see if it cools off. But here in the crypto world, it's like, we we dive right in and and because number goes up number goes up um you know and that didn't happen this time <laughs> it, it, far yeah. from it yeah <laughs> and also the level they think it will go up is always to a somewhat delusional level i mean i this was part of the article and i think you mentioned it before but someone who thought that luna was going to go up to $1000 and i think bought in at $88 or in the case of el salvador so they're launching 
a Bitcoin bond, which is this $1 billion bond that can go to finance the building of this great Bitcoin city that they that they have planned. Uh, and the economics behind it is that for the bond to actually be able to reap the interest that it needs to or that they say it's going to, I think it's they calculate that Bitcoin will be at a million dollars in five years. And currently it's at around $30,000 at the time when the bond was announced. I think it was almost at $70,000, but that's still an immense growth and the type of growth that you don't really see anywhere in traditional finance, even when you're looking at the best performing stocks, that type of growth isn't really reasonable. But people have been primed to that because since I guess the mainstream growth of crypto starting in 2017, when you saw Bitcoin go up to $2,000 and then a couple of years ago, when I went up to $20,000 or when you're talking about any of these meme coins that can actually go up a thousand percent in a day, that's what people are accustomed to. And when it, when it comes to that, I don't think there's a lot of logic that goes into it. You say, well, I could actually make a million dollars if I invest $10 <laughs> and that's, and that's really risky. Right. Right. I mean, you know, in, in covering, uh, you know, I, I was never like a stock person. Uh, but in covering crypto, you automatically have to like sort of get some, you know, dig in and find and find out more. And in my, you know, in in my, uh, you know, looking into like how, for example, like the most risky thing you could do in the stock market is day trading. Like day traders that, you know, there's tons of like research and studies out there talking about how like stressful the, the, that, the, the people who decide to do that and like the vast majority of them end up down, you know, on their earnings anyway. Like the percentage of day traders that actually make a lot of money or, or make any money, frankly, is, is very small. But when you like look at like the people who are day trading, you, you sort of see like the success stories there on like the day to day is like when they do a day trade and make like 1% or like something like that. It's some like, cause like even there it's sort of understood like what is actually, uh, you know, sort of like a reachable sort of number to hit. They're not like, you know, they don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to like turn around and make uh, and my profits going to be 500 plus on one day trade. Like, unfortunately I think there's this belief in crypto that like that, that that will be like again we're we're talking almost more like hitting the lottery than actually like even the most riskiest of like your classic sort of investment strategies <laughs> yeah and of course there is a subset of traditional finance which is maybe just as risky like options trading but like you said right. it's not going to be the majority of what's happening in traditional finance and when it comes to crypto maybe with the exception of some of the stable coins or with Bitcoin, where probably it's not going to change more than, say, 30% on any given day, it's immense amounts of volatility. Uh, and again, it just goes back to this question of, I think a lot of people are getting into it, whether they're seeing ads at the Super Bowl, or whether they're hearing about it from a friend in Argentina, or from an influencer in Pakistan, they're getting into it without necessarily understanding the risks. Did did anyone um, tell you who you spoke to? Did any well, first of all, what was the uh, the largest sum of money lost in the group that you spoke with? Uh, I think it was probably in the thousands of dollars, like in the low thousands of dollars. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but right. collectively, it was certainly in the tens of thousands, if not more. 
Right. I mean, that's 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 that's, I mean, that's a lot of money to me. So I can imagine how much it is to people outside the U.S. in a you know, yeah. country. Like- and it kind of represented most of, if not all of their savings. So if it might not be huge sums of money for people in the U.S. Uh, in, in different countries that can represent the entirety of their savings. Right. And, and, you know, and when people say savings, too, we should say, like, you know, this isn't necessarily even like money they would have had in the bank. Like this might have even been just money. They like cut back on other things because they heard about this opportunity where they can, you know, make some extra money via crypto. And so, you know, they 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 cut back on regular expenses to actually just set aside this money that in normal, you know, normal times they they just wouldn't have they wouldn't have done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these countries, I think you see people storing any savings they have in something like the U.S. dollar if they can access it. And this is different because both it was bearing interest or yields when it came to something like Anchor, or it wasn't a currency where they expected it to be stable. They expected it to be something where they could turn to it tomorrow and it'd be the same amount of money. And of course it wasn't. Right. Right. Now, one last thing I want to talk to you about. Now, we, I had to, you know, I, I sprung this on you right before we uh, started talking, but I was like, you know, preparing for this episode, I really, you know, took a dive into your, um, you know, your your portfolio of work at Rest of World. And I came across this piece you wrote in uh, in fall of last year in 2021. And you uh, were given uh data compiled by uh, Chainalysis, which is a blockchain data firm. And it looked into basically the, the you know, who is investing in uh, decentralized finance, DeFi. And, you know, I, I recently um, on an episode, I think it was the last episode I did of this show, spoke about how in just looking at Bitcoin, there is the, 99% versus 1% like there is in in the real world like you know the the uh the framing that became so big a decade ago during the Occupy Wall Street movement uh where like you know 1% of the uh 1% of uh people in the US own like something like 90% of the wealth or something like that um in bitcoin alone it's even crazier where 0.01% of Bitcoin holders hold something like 35% of all Bitcoin, which is, you know, astonishing. And, you know, quite frankly, you assume that, and again, it seems like uh, the crypto market is is really still, I don't know if it'll ever be able to get away from this, but the way Bitcoin goes, the rest of the market goes as well. Um, and... It seems like that works the same way when it comes to who's holding these currencies, these cryptocurrencies as well, or who's even taking part in the various different investment schemes. And in your piece, uh, looking at the chain analysis data, it shows that this was in in like the DeFi space, decentralized finance. It's even more, like it's just as an equal, where like a a very small subset of people are actually. Not only even just investing in like DeFi protocols, but also they're the ones building it completely to like make money off of themselves. And like the barrier to entry is so high for normal people that, you know, they're not the ones making any money from this. Yeah. Yeah. So to preface all of this, uh, and we had talked about this before, 
the one of the biggest problems with cryptocurrency, especially as a reporter, is it's so difficult to get your hands on actual data of things like adoption and usage and engagement. You see all these articles, especially from crypto acolytes or crypto press that says, look how much crypto is catching on across the world with everyday people. Uh, so what I always try to do is actually try to get any sort of hard data or numbers that can really try to explain what adoption looks like, especially outside the US. Um, this article in particular, so we were looking at DeFi or decentralized finance, which is a subset of cryptocurrency. The brief explanation is that with a company like Coinbase, they're actually holding your key and your wallet. So it's more centralized with DeFi or decentralized finance. It's actually holding true to that decentralized promise of cryptocurrency where you're in control of everything. You hold your private key, which is basically your way of accessing your crypto tokens. And there's often very complex protocols that come with it, like the type of lending protocols that you saw with Terra USD. Right. Anchor uh, protocol, so, like we spoke about earlier, is an example of what like a, you know, a DeFi system would look like. like it is one like it's part of yeah. it's, it's a decentralized. It's an example of decentralized finance. Yeah, exactly. So in this article, what Chainalysis was able to do was show how much DeFi was growing over the past couple of years, which was an enormous amount, as well as the percentage of overall cryptocurrency, crypto activity that was happening within the DeFi space. Um, and we use DeFi as a proxy for showing because DeFi does tend to be limited more to expert users or to people in traditional finance who are getting into crypto for speculative nature. Basically, what it showed is that crypto overwhelmingly is being dominated by financial experts or technical experts. Um, I think the important caveat here, given what we've talked about today, is we're looking at this in a, the sense of total capital. That doesn't mean that normal people aren't getting into it. They're just, as you said, a tiny percentage of that overall wealth. And also when the blowback happens, when the crash happens, they're going to be feel, feeling that disproportionately. At the same time, I think, as you said, crypto is still a space that is overwhelmingly going to be dominated by experts and by insiders. Uh, and it, it certainly hasn't caught on in the mainstream in the way that a lot of its biggest acolytes want to say it has. Right. Over in your piece, over 60% of DeFi transactions in the second quarter of 2021 were above $10 million. I mean, that's, that's insanity. That's, I mean, that's, I, I don't, I don't, I can't think of a, a, a better example of just how, uh, who's using these sort of systems and who's making money. And this should be said too, like, you know, that small percentage of people like the people you spoke to in your most recent piece who put their thousand dollars in, hundred dollars in, five thousand dollars in, you know, when you get enough of those people uh, putting money in, you do have like, you know, again, not 60 percent like these guys putting in uh, 10 million dollar uh, transactions, um, but you do have a significant number amount of money. Um, and that's also uh, seems to be where those, you know, those financial the financial experts and those crypto, uh, you know, big wigs and the the big holders, seems like that seems to be where their pool of profit comes from. To be quite frank, yeah, it's definitely still an industry dominated by the term is the whales or the the biggest holders of crypto, right? So. 
w- did anyone you spoke with to to sort of I guess um uh you know sort of leave this on a note of what's next did you know what what was some of the um the um the sentiment from people you spoke with about what's next what were they going to do uh, did you hear from people who uh were trying to figure out what to do financially did you hear from people who shared their opinion of crypto after this all happened what what was the sentiment from some people you spoke with yeah so i think there's two sides of this the first of course is the people who lost their money i think there was still hope that the the terra foundation and luna would be able to provide some amount of money back to them i think bennett talked about that on your episode the different proposals that people had to take some of the reserves that the foundation had and distribute it among the holders who had lost all their money uh, i was part of a discord group that was all about restitution uh, that's actually how i found a lot of the sources for the article i don't think there's been a lot of movement on that front so unfortunately uh, it doesn't seem like there's there's any real solution along those lines in terms of people who have lost all their money. Uh, the next question is what this means for crypto overall in a lot of these emerging markets. And I think the most powerful quote came from that educator in Argentina that we spoke about, where he said, for everyday people, we had been seeing some progress. We had started to see more mainstream adoption happening slowly but surely, which in his eyes was a good thing. Um, but now with this crash, it doesn't matter that it was pretty limited to Terra, which was this one stablecoin. What he said was the the exact words don't really matter. It could be Bitcoin. It could be decentralized finance. It could be centralized finance. It could be anything. All they know is that they put their money in crypto and they lost everything. I think his exact words were crypto fucked me. I'm never coming back, you know? So it, it, I think the most interesting question in crypto always has to do with sort of getting behind or getting below that layer of hype that you see and really trying to understand how much it's it's catching on with the mainstream and with everyday people. And I think most experts would agree that this has been a huge setback for the industry overall. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but they're still uh, plugging away. I, you know, I, I didn't want to bring it up because it's a whole nother episode, but I, I do need I, I do feel like I need to ask, did any people you spoke with, did any of them, uh, maybe, maybe even spoke with them before this happened, but did any of them talk about uh, Luna, the Luna 2 airdrop and if they received anything from that. Because for people who don't know, basically in an attempt to revive the, uh, the Luna and Terra system, uh, the, the, the founders, Do Kwan and company, basically relaunched Luna as Luna 2.0 and um, gave an airdrop of free Luna 2.0 tokens to everyone who was previously holding Luna. Um, and of course... People uh, receive those coin, those tokens, and it seems like a whole hell of a lot of them, in order to recoup even a small uh, percent of what they lost, turned around and sold them off. And like it went from like a $30 valuation to I don't even know what it was at now, but when I last saw it, it was like five bucks. Yeah, so my reporting was before that happened. I haven't been following it too closely, but as you said, it, it doesn't seem like it's been going the most swimmingly. Right, yeah. Uh, could, could you? Could you? I saw one tweet where it was like, um, it's like uh, I I was able to sell. Off, I received Luna two, and I immediately sold off to recoup some of my money. And someone replied, "Oh, uh, how much did you you sell it?" And it was like, "Oh, I made like two hundred fifty bucks." And they were like, "Oh, so you did you recoup a significant amount?" And they were like, "Oh, that was like less than point five percent of what I lost." And I was like, "Oh my, oh my god, yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> yeah." 
it's all it's all very bleak and it's tough i mean even when i when we released this article i think a lot of the sentiment a lot of the responses on twitter were basically good riddance you know these people fell for it why should i feel sorry for them but i don't think we can feel anything but sympathy again for what we've talked about today which is a pretty broken global financial system whether you're talking about traditional finance or crypto uh people are turning to this for whatever reason uh and crashes like this seem inevitable and the the outcome has been incredibly bleak and incredibly sad to report on and i think it's just good to really put that real world uh examples of of how this has impacted people out there and that it's not just the crypto bros who are suffering Absolutely. And, you know, Do Kwan, for example, uh, the, the papa of all this, of Luna and Terra, you know, he, he's, he's going to be just fine. I'm sure he's already cashed out tons of money over the years. And probably if not, uh, you know, if he's not a um, uh, hundred million dollars uh, net worth, he might even be more than that. Um, you know, he's not hurting. You know, he'll, he'll be fine. It's the people that you spoke with and more. Who will really, you know, they got scammed. I mean, this this is the scam economy, and that's what that's what happened to them. They got they got scammed. Um, Leo Schwartz of RestofWorld.org. Uh, you focus on Latin America, and you're you're based out of Mexico City, right? Yes. Have you, in your own personal, like this is purely anecdotal, but I'm just interested. Um, in Mexico City, do you come across like crypto or anything like that in terms of like you know? Uh, people using it there for, you know, in stores or the ATMs or remittances. What's the, what's your own personal experience with how it's used where you are, if at all? Uh, there's a bar about 15 <laughs> blocks from me called the Bitcoin Embassy, which what? holds Bitcoin themed events. Uh, beyond that, there is just a big news item where uh, a crypto company installed a Bitcoin, Bitcoin or a crypto ATM in the Mexican Senate. So that made a lot of waves. It does seem like with a lot of crypto, a lot of these uh, have been stunts <laughs> to some degree. Again, I don't know the degree that engagement is happening with everyday people. It's not like you can walk down the block and buy Bitcoin with Mexican pesos, but they're certainly trying to make it happen. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Tether, which is a stablecoin we spoke about, uh, launched a new stablecoin that was pegged to the Mexican peso. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, we'll see how I'm sure you'll be back on, unfortunately, to tell me about how that didn't go so swimmingly. <laughs> Sadly enough, I mean, yeah, uh, Leo, this was great. Where can people find you online? Please use this opportunity to promote anything you'd like website, upcoming piece, your social media handles. Feel free. Go ahead. Space is yours. Thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely check out restofworld.org. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering global technology. We have reporters and editors all over the world. So definitely a really cool site covering technology in a way you might not be used to. And you can find me on Twitter at Leo M. Schwartz. Thanks a lot, Leo. Have a great night. Thanks so much. You too. And trust me, there's going to be so much more to talk about Terra. And Luna, hey, I still got to do the Luna 2.0 episode. Tons of great stuff coming up on the scam economy. You heard all the ways you can support this show at the beginning of the episode. So I'm not going to repeat it all, but just a quick rundown. Patreon.com to support this show. 
If you can, that's the best way to support this show. But if you can't, here are some other great ways to support. YouTube.com slash MattBinder. Subscribe to the channel. Leave a super chat. Leave a super thanks. Twitch.tv slash MattBinder. Follow the channel. And if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can connect your Amazon Prime account to your Twitch account. And you get a free Twitch Prime subscription. Again, this is like you're 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 like Robinhood, and I'm not talking the investing app. I'm talking about Robinhood, who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. You get to take from Amazon, and it's sanctioned too. You're not even stealing from them; they're giving you this money. You get to take this money from Amazon and give to, well, me if you'd like, and follow me on Twitch at Twitch.tv/MattBinder. ScamEconomy.com for the podcast version of the show. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search Scam Economy. It'll come right up. Click the stars. Write a written review if you'd like. It's a great big help in getting new eyeballs on this show. Follow me on Twitter, at Matt Binder. Search for me. Just search Matt Binder on any social media platform. You'll likely find me there. And, folks, I hope you'll join me for the live stream right after this show. And, Really, tune into any of the live streams I do throughout the week. Uh, just subscribe on YouTube and Twitch, and you'll be notified when there's a scheduled episode. Oh, really quick, too. I just wanted to thank everyone for the kind words and reviews that have come in about the live Scam Economy show that was, well, live in Brooklyn on May 26th and then was, uh, you know, basically uh, turned into last week's episode as both a video and audio uh, version of the show. I, I, you know, people really seem to enjoy it. And uh, if you haven't checked it out already, please do. And uh, with all that said, I will see you all next time on the Scam Economy. <laughs> <laughs>